Wow, isn't that great? Amen. Everybody said yes. God bless you. We see you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> I was glad to see you moving in um, the shout. Everywhere I go in the nations, um, I have been leading them in the shout because the shout of faith is one of the strongest weapons of warfare we have. When you're in the name of Jesus, established in the Word of God, with the high praise of God in heart and spirit, when you give a shout, it is so powerful, it goes off an awful like an atomic bomb in the heavenly realms and blasts demons every direction. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, it, it's so, the Bible says in Psalm 47, 5, God is going up with a shout. He shouted and took him all the way to heaven. And when the children of Israel shouted, these are what you call prophetic acts. You act out what God's going to do in the heavenlies. Pro- prophetic acts. The Bible is full of prophetic acts. Amen. And, um, you know, when the, God had the children of Israel to shout at Jericho, and those ten-foot-thick walls, seventy-foot-tall, came crumbling down flat. I don't, I don't, there's no scientific answer for it. It's just they did a prophetic act, obeyed God, and God did the work. Amen. And then the Bible says, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, 18, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. You realize he's coming back to shout? He says that Gabriel's going to sound the trumpet, and then the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive and remain will be changed from mortal to immortal. That shout, when he comes back, he comes back, Hallelujah! Amen? And when he shouts, it's so powerful, it resurrects the dead, changes our mortal bodies, and begins a whole new era of the world. Amen? I mean, that's powerful. And you know, when Israel started marching forth, they, said, they started out with saying that God arise and is in it to be scattered. How many got the living Christ within you? And he was the word in the beginning, and he spoke everything into existence. So when you shout and you let the Creator arise, the demons flee every direction. And so you got your breakthrough. You, you actually get breakthrough. And when you want to get, get a breakthrough, get all the warriors together and give the shout of faith, and you blast holes through the powers of darkness. Amen. And then I was glad to see your feet are liberated too. Because, you know, praise in the dance is a march of the army of the Lord. Hallelujah. And so... You've got to learn, and God's raising up an army. I know uh, as I, the first book I wrote was The Eternal Church. I started um, teaching on the Restoration Church in 1959, and then I did endless research for the next 25 years, and then started writing the book, the 400-page book on the Restoration of the Church. And I'd studied it all out. But in the book, I prophesied and in the book that God was going to have to bring another restoration movement to restore prophets and apostles back into the church. Because I don't know whether you know church history and what's happened, but uh, most of the evangelicals this dispensationally depleted apostles and prophets and said they used to write the Bible after the Bible was written, didn't need the apostles and prophets anymore, and the only ones they recognized was three, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But Jesus gave five in Ephesians 4.11, and nowhere did he say he took them out. And they're, they're there until the church is perfected matured and ready to be presented to the Lamb of God as, as a bride. And uh, so we had to deal with that. And I remember when we uh, 
as you, as you heard, we had a restoration, we had a correspondence extension college university for years. And um, when we started, when we moved from, we started out in San Antonio, Texas, moved to Arizona for seven years, then moved to Florida in 1984, and been there now for 28 years. And um, But when we started having the prophetic seminars, we sent out a mailing, and nobody in the college were, knew who we were, what we were, except we was a university. We didn't emphasize it. And they said, we said we're going to have a seminar, and our president is a prophet. Well, we got a letter from a little Baptist brother, pastor. He said, well, if your president is a prophet, why doesn't he write the 67th book of the Bible? <laughs> well, because that was a concept. The Old Testament prophets wrote the Old Testament, and New Testament apostles wrote the New Testament. But God says that's not the main purpose. Because if that was the main purpose, only three of the twelve apostles wrote books that got in the Bible. Nine of them fulfilled their ministry, if that's all they were called to do. Now, God gave them to equip the church for, and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Amen. And preachers, we've got to remember, our number one priority is not just to preach good messages, write books, and do great things, but to equip the saints. We've got to be reproducers, reproducers. Way back in 1984, there was an old prophet, 64 years old. He's a young prophet now. But then he, I was 48, and he was 64. And he prophesied, and he said, you're going to be a, God's going to send a sovereign move of God in five years. And there's anointing coming upon you, and you're going to have a reproducing anointing, and you're going to reproduce reproducers who reproduce reproducers. Amen? And thank God, four and a half years later, the prophetic movement was birthed in 1988 on October the 15th at a Christian National Conference there in Sandestin, Florida. And um, then that reproduced an anointing. And I was sharing with the pastors how that back in the 1948 and 49 and 50, when the great evangelist arose in the great evangelistic movement, T.L. Uh, Osborne, Oral Roberts, and, and William Branham, Jack Cole, all of those guys, they, you'd ask them, I, I, as a young pastor, I'd go up and say, how do you move in the word of knowledge? How do you know how to pray for people for healing? And they all had the same answer. I can't tell you God's secrets. And they just didn't have that revelation or anointing. But when God anointed me, I received my first personal prophecy, a prophetic prosperity at Bible College in 1953. And then, but it was 20 years later, 1973, that God released that endless prophetic flow and released that reproducing anointing. And now, thank God, we've reproduced over 250,000 that we know of. And then, you know, it's just reproducers who reproduce, reproducers who reproduce. Amen. And my mother came down just before she died, and we took a five-generation picture, you know. But in the spirit world, I have eight and ten generations. I find people that are teaching who was taught, who was taught, who was taught, and now they're reproducing. How many believe every seed should produce after its kind? And we're to reproduce like kind. And um, so I want to share it with you a little bit tonight, uh, a little bit of catch up with the fact my main anointing is on the restoration of the church. Uh, every apostle, every prophet has a specialty or gifting anointing. Mine is, like the sons of Issachar, to know the times and seasons and what God's people ought to do. And to know the times of restoration. And uh, I guess I have written and taught more on the restoration of the church than any other ministry. In fact, I can't find another book hardly anywhere on the restoration of the church. And I find 95% of Christians, charismatic, prophetic, apostolic Christians, don't know where they came from. They kind of know where they are, have no idea where they're going. But, you know, I like to know my history. 
I remember for a while there, back in the 60s, you know, or 70s, they talked about the black history. You want to know it? Well, you, you need to know your family history as a Christian, as a church. Amen? We need to know where we came from, how we got here. Have an appreciation of what God's doing. And know the purpose of God. So in, um, when I wrote the book on the eternal church, I predicted there had to be another move of God to bring about the restoration of the prophets and apostles. Then in 1982, God brought, uh, in 81, I published the book on eternal church. Then in 82, God brought the revelation of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. How many read the book on prophets and personal prophecy? Oh, there's a few of you going to go through the Great Tribulation. I haven't read my book yet. All right. <laughs> uh, but God, uh, in, the, in that book out there on prophets and personal prophecy, it's going around the world. It's in about 50, uh, I think it's 20 or 30 na- uh, nationality languages. It's become the Bible on the prophetic, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about that company of prophets God's raising up. Just as John the Baptist fulfilled the Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 prophecy, Behold, I send you Elijah who will prepare the way and make ready a people for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist, Jesus said he fulfilled that prophecy as a, uh, personally. But then he, said, then he said in Matthew 17, 3, Elijah shall come. He has come and he shall come. And so, as you know, prophecy is pluralistic and it has more than one meaning. It can be fulfilled personally and corporately. And so God showed he was going to raise up a company of prophets to prepare the way and make ready of people for Christ's second coming, just like John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah prepared the way and made ready of people for his first coming. Amen? Now, so we began to preach that and teach that, and after uh, 82 to 88, then in 88, God birthed the prophetic movement. Then we started talking about the apostles had to come down. I wrote the book on apostle prophets and the coming moves of God. And I talked about in there that the apostles had to be restored. Talked about the apostles, how they relate to fivefold ministry. And then <clears throat> I talked about the next three moves of God I see coming. One was the first was the saints movement, and then the army of the Lord movement, then the kingdom establishing movement. Well, we wrote the book on apostle prophets, coming moves of God. Then I started preaching about the coming of the day of the saints and saints movement. And 1997, I started teaching on it in 2007. The, the prophetic movement was birthed at our converts, Cindy Jacobs, uh, Chuck Pierce, Dutch Sheets, and several others were at the prophetic conference, and they all agreed that the, prophet, the saints movement was birthed. And the saints movement re- re- comes to the place where every saint comes to realize you've got a ministry. How many believe and know that the Bible says the church is called the body of Christ? And we're all members, and there's no such thing as a member without a ministry. Come on, I said, there's no such thing. Every member, I don't think you'd let me cut off your little finger. You know, you don't. Every cell has got a purpose. And regardless how insignificant you may seem, you may not be the eyeball, the ear, the nose, or the mouth, or the backbone, but if you're just one cell, you're very important. So everybody has a ministry, a function. And what we try to do is give you an unction to function. Amen. Because Paul told Timothy, stir up the gifts of God which are within you. That's the reason we started teaching on Activation. I coined the word activate to describe what Second Timothy one six says. Paul told Timothy, said, I laid hands on you, I prophesied over you, I imparted a gift. Now you stir up that gift, you stir it up. Everybody say you stir it up. So to keep from having to repeat that over and over again, I just chose the word activate, which means stir it up and get it moving. Come on. 
How many here uh, know you're born again beyond a shadow of a doubt, been born of the Spirit? How many know you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and His Spirit language for you? Then when He came, He brought one, two, or more gifts that you're responsible for to bless the body of Christ. Come on. All nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are sitting here in Holy Ghost bodies, and most of them not being used. You take them to church, don't take them out and bless me. Go to work, you don't take them out and bless me. You go to, you know, they're sitting there ever since you. How many has been filled with the Holy Ghost more than five years? Ten. You can lower your hand when you run out of time. Fifteen. Twenty. Who will make it? Twenty-five. Thirty. <laughs> Forty. Fifty. Sixty. I've been filled with the Holy Ghost for sixty years. Sixty years. Amen. But I find the link of having it is not what makes the difference. It's the revelation and the willingness to let God activate what He's put within you. And so we've been teaching and training, wrote the big manual for ministry and spiritual gifts, and taught and trained people how to activate your gift. And I could take any of you that as they're doing here, I can have you one week and have every one of you prophesied, moving in the word of knowledge, moving in the gifts of healing, because all you have to do is activate it. I say activate it. You see, we have, we have an activation. How many know that um, evangelicals have an activation? It's called the sinner's prayer. Come on. What you do, you have people come forward, preach a message on salvation. People come forward, line up there. Then what do you do? The preacher says, pray after me. Repeat the words I say. Now here this preacher is going to have the audacity and the boldness to say, if you repeat my words that I give you to say, which he believes with the word of God, it will activate the gift of eternal life within you. Is that what you say, preachers? I know we use say, born again, but... It activates again. He that hath the Son hath everlasting life. So what do we have him do? We say, okay, line up. Now, pray after me, oh God. Now, I understand how that was. My religious background was American heathen. <laughs> I, was, I was never inside a church before I got saved in a Bush Arbor meeting in the hills of Oklahoma. I was 15 years old. And a lady came from Oklahoma City, 200 miles away, and started the Bush Arbor meeting. You know, how many know what a Bush Arbor meeting is? You're all city folks. Okay. I was raised on a 300-acre farm in Oklahoma. We raised cotton, peanuts, and corn, and I picked a lot of cotton in my life. But anyhow, uh, she came down, and, and my dad had rented 200 acres in the back over there, and uh, wasn't electricity in our area uh, at that time. It was just we. Uh, have cut down some little trees about this size, and you stick them in the ground, take the brush, lay it over the top, and that's a brush arbor. And they take some bridge boards and lay them across blocks of wood, and then put sawdust on the, on around the altar and on the ground there, and that's where you come to pray. That's where you hit the sawdust trail. Amen. <laughs> You've all heard that old saying. And, um, and they started preaching uh, salvation, and um, I started going because I had a girlfriend. And her mom and her mom and her older sister were part of the Christians that were putting on this program, on I mean, this revival, they called it. Now, I'd never read the Bible, heard about God or Jesus or anything, except my mom one time said, there's a coming to the end of the world and people go to hell or heaven. And I thought, wow, that sounds bad. And I thought, and when I went through this revival, they started preaching on hell. And I thought, man, if hell is hotter than Oklahoma in July, I want to go to the cruise spot. But... Uh, 
So I, I started going over there and, and riding my horse two miles over to the Bush Harbor meeting. And then afterwards, I'd walk my girlfriend home, lead my horse, and walk my girlfriend a mile and a half home. Then read, ride, ride three miles home and, fit, and shuck some corn for my horse and unbridle and unsaddle him. And, and after about a week, I started praying. I'd go in there and pray. And I don't know. That's why they, they raised their hands and prayed. I, they said they were Pentecostal. I had no idea what that was. And um, so, you know, they're from our assembly, little Assembly God Church in Ballsville, Oklahoma. They came out there. And um, I, I started praying. And um, one day they were preaching. They said they were preaching from a Bible. So I came home. I said, Mom, the preacher talks about a book called the Bible. Do we have one of those? And she said, yes, I think so. We looked around, and she found in her dresser drawer an old Gideon Bible with cover torn off. And So I took it out to the barn and hid away from my family. I had two brothers, two sisters, mom and dad, none of them Christian, and hid and started reading it to find out what they said was true. I'd take notes, kind of. And um, every night when they'd get through preaching, they'd come down to the altar. I mean, they'd come down and they'd go down and each one of them, was about 10 or 12 of us young men rode our horses over there. And they'd come by and they'd say, you need to get saved. I mean, they'd just witness and witness and just come at you, you know. And I know my older brother, uh, he, when he got embarrassed, he turned real red-faced. And so uh, when they started witnessing to him, he had turned red-faced, and the boys under conviction didn't let him have it. And they'd come to me, and I'd just give them that silly grin, and they just passed me by. They never did try to, <laughs> they never tried to get me. I remember when the, we rode a bus uh, you know, to go to high school, uh, five miles to go to high school, and uh, I remember when the bus driver kicked me off the bus and said, that boy's going to be a murderer or a preacher. I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad I turned out to be the preacher. <laughs> and um, but finally one night on my 16th birthday, my girlfriend gave me a, a, a box uh, wrapped and I tied it on the back of my saddle. And um, when we got back home, I went through the regular routine of, feeding my horse and unsettling, praying. And I went to the house, and when I opened the gift, it was a, one of those little Bibles with a zipper around it, brand-new Bible. And kind of like Oral Roberts said, God used that as a point of contact. And I don't know, something happened suddenly. I just felt like somebody washed me clean, and I felt so happy. I started laughing. I felt so thankful. I started crying. It got a mixture. My dad woke up, and my dad could not say yes or no without a brrrr. He could cuss worse than a sailor. And he said, Bill, I'm going to, if you don't shut up and go to sleep, we've got to work in the peanut field tomorrow. <laughs> and so I, I quietened down and snick, snuck out and went out to the smokehouse. Now, for you city folks, that's not where you go to smoke. That's where we, <laughs> that's where we killed the hogs and, 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 and cut them up and sorted them down and hung them in the smokehouse, smoked them with them. Amen. And, um, but I went down and prayed for about an hour. And then the next night, I went to the Bush Harbor meeting, and uh, they started giving the altar call. My girlfriend said, I've talked to my girlfriends here, uh, here, which were three of my cousins. They said, we'll go to the altar if you would. So I thought, okay, they need to go. I guess we'll go. I stood up, and they all started, all the preachers started saying hallelujah. So what they're getting excited about, we're going for the goods. you know. <laughs> but we went to the altar, and I knelt down on that old rough bridge board on sawdust, and I started praying, and I saw a vision of Jesus hanging on the cross. And he looked at me and said, Bill, I died for you. Will you live for me? And as I was beholding that, I was just praying. And pretty soon, this little old brother, it must have been 30 or 40 years old, and he came over and he, let, he said, that's it, brother, just turn loose. And I thought, turn loose? I turned loose the altar. I said, okay. 
Then it sent the rain, sent the fire. Then it says, you know, just, just hold on. So I grab back hold of the altar. <laughs> and um, I, thought, I thought to myself, what are you doing bugging me? I've got something good going here. I don't know what it is, but boy, it's joyful. It's a blessing. Then he then said, just speak it out. Just talk it out. And I thought, talk it out. And all of a sudden, my conscious mind went down to what my mouth was saying, and it was an okey lingo. Amen. It was a brand new tongue, a language of the Spirit. And for the next 45 minutes, I talked in the language of the Spirit. Amen. And that started in July the 29th, 1950, at the middle of the last century. <laughs> Hallelujah. And, uh, you know, and I said all that to say this. I thought for years that I taught God into saving me. I taught God into filling me. I taught God into calling me in the ministry until one day I realized he chose me. He went after me. And he went way down there in Oklahoma, five miles from Red River, and just way out in the middle of nowhere, said, I want you. I want you. Amen. And, and, and you know, that lady probably won't know till we all get to heaven what she did. I was the only young man out of 15 that went to that conference, uh, revival that got saved. You know, and I stayed saved. Stayed walking with God. You know, and praise God, I've now affected people around the world. We have now over 3,000 ministers in our Christian National Global Network, and we have people training and equipping people in the prophetic, in Africa, Asia, Europe, you know, India, every nation just about, on all the continents. They're training people to hear the voice of God and minister in the supernatural. This is the day of the supernatural. Amen. Now, as I was praying this afternoon... Uh, you know, there's so much. I was going to tell you that um, um, the other books, that Day of the Saints, every saint needs to read this book. It tells you how to activate the prophetic and the supernatural in your life. And how many saints we have here? Just a few Catholics waiting until they die and get in a stained glass window. Okay. Um, but then, after I wrote the Day of the Saints and the Day of the Saints was birthed, I still had a hunger. Have you ever had a scratch you couldn't itch inside? You ever had a hunger? You pray, you worship, and you talk in tongues, you go to church, but there's something you just can't touch. That's when you're pregnant with something. That's, and I should have known it because I was that way for about three years before the prophetic movement was birthed. And um, so I was, I was just happy that the saints movement had been birthed, but I still, just something was gnawing at me. Something was, and I was crying out, oh God. What, you, what is it? What do you want? What do you want to do? And being a re- restoration person, finally in 2008, God spoke to me and gave me a vision and revelation and said the third and final church reformation has been decreed in heaven. Now, the first reformation was the birthing of the church and the establishing of the church and then spreading it to the ends of the earth. And it went from about 30 A.D. to around 300. Amen. And then the church began to spread throughout the world. Then the church went into the Dark Age from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. And then in 1517, Martin Luther, a Catholic priest who got a revelation that the work, dead works of the church couldn't save you, only the blood of Jesus and the faith in the accomplished work of Christ. He started preaching that, and they excommunicated him, and he started keep preaching. And it, it, the Protestant, because he protested against the Catholic dead works, dead old dark order church and, and the, the Egyptian church, so to speak. He kept preaching it, and because of that, people started following his teaching and what they, they called it the Protestant movement because they protested against the religious system of that day and hour. And from that, 
when Martin Luther King sprung up the Lutheran Church, and then John Knox went to Scotland, and then the Presbyterian Church arose from that. Then Kramer started preaching in England, and the Church of England arose from that, which became the uh, what we call in America Episcopalian. And those were the three main churches that were activated and brought into being to carry on the truth at the beginning of the Second Reformation. After that, there's come an evangelical movement in the 1600s, wholeness movement in the 1700s, divine healing movement in 1880, then the Pentecostal movement in 1900, then a restoration movement in 48, and then we had the charismatic renewal in 1960, then we had the faith movement in the 1970s, and then we had the prophetic in the 80s, apostolic in the 90s, day of the saints movement in 2007, and then in 2008, God said, now there's been enough restoration of truth, and ministries that now will take everything we have been restored to us and activate it in the demonstrable reality. We can now demonstrate the kingdom of God until every nation becomes a sheep or goat nation. Come on. So the purpose of the Second Reformation was to restore all the truths that were lost during the dark age of the church. And let me tell you, everything you enjoy today was gone in that dark age. No born-again experience, no joy of the Lord, no peace of God, no filling with the Holy Ghost, no baptism by immersion. Nothing you enjoy today was active in the church. And there's only two representations of Christendom during that thousand years. And that was the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Roman Catholic. There's also always a little remnant here and there that, you know, struggling to maintain. But the only two representations of Christianity was that. How many is glad you weren't born in that thousand-year dark age? You read about it, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's, 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 the year 1000 is called the dark midnight hour of the dark age. And uh, I've studied history, studied hundreds and thousands of books on it, and it was something else. But now, thank God we're in 2012. Now, let me explain. A Reformation has several restoration movements in it. There were nine restoration movements to establish the church and bring forth the First Reformation. There's about eight or nine restoration movements, according to whether you group some of them or not, in the Second Reformation. From 1517 to 2007, those 490 years of restoration, there was nine major restoration movements. And let me say, as a historian, my doctorate is in church history and what's in the removals, revivals, and restoration. The prophetic apostolic movement restored more truths and more ministries than any other restoration movement since the Protestant movement. Amen? And most people don't even know there was a prophetic apostolic movement. They all know it was a charismatic or Pentecostal. Well, there was, and there is. But then it's not the end. And I kept asking the Lord, when I wrote the book on the restoration of the church, I saw those restorations, I kept asking the Lord this, Lord, why are you restoring the church? Why do you need one generation that's come to the fullness of truth, everything that you intended? Why? And I didn't get the answer till 2008, 58 years later. And the Lord said, I restored the church. The ultimate was not just to restore the church, but it was to launch, restore the church and then use the church to finish God's purpose for man on earth. How many know 
God created man. Now, let me give you some assurance. God starts at the end. His vision of the finished product, then he begins. For instance, this building we're in, somebody had to design it. And before they ever dug the foundation, they had the whole finished building in view. Right? Now, I want you to know, before God created Adam and Eve, he had the end purpose for creating man in view. Wow. And before he created Adam, he knew exactly what he wanted Adam to look like. He wanted him to be in his own image and likeness. Amen? He knew he wanted him to be body, soul, and spirit. That There was a purpose for that. He wanted him to have head on top, two eyes, nose, mouth, arms. Come on. God made man in his own image and likeness. In fact, he'd look in the mirror, work in it, work in the mirror. Okay, just like me. I think when God and Adam walked in the garden, angels had to look twice to see which was Adam, which was God. Amen? They were identical twins. Because how many believe God made man in his own image and likeness? And God knew what he needed for man. Then, take us going down the line. Moses received the blueprint for the tabernacle. Before he ever started building the tabernacle, he knew every part. He knew the outer court, the inner court, the Holy of Holies. He knew every material that would be used. He had the whole picture. When David received the blueprint for the temple, he had the whole finished product in his mind. And when God was going to send his son to this earth, he had the final view in mind. He sent him with a purpose. He knows the end from the beginning. So he knew, and Jesus said it several times in the Gospels, he knew that Jesus was going to go to die on the cross, body put in the grave, and be resurrected back to heaven. But Jesus had to fulfill. But to fulfill that end purpose, he had to start with the right product. And what he had to have was a human being. Let me get down here and talk to you. Amen. When you get 78, your knees don't work quite as right as they used to. But I, I keep on going. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Good. She, she woke up. Okay, now. i got to get down here. Uh, throw water on you if you go to sleep. Amen. Now, how many believe God made you? You know, you know he's got a sense of humor. Go home and look in the mirror. <laughs> he made us. Amen. But God made man and woman. When God made man, he made him a special way. With a body that if he didn't, if he quit eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate of the tree of the, uh, I mean, if he quit eating of the tree of life and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death would set in. Come on. And they did eat, and death set in. And God said, in the day that you eat, you'll die. And Peter says, a day with the Lord is a thousand years. And not one person ever lived over a thousand years. Methuselah lived 969, Adam lived 930 years and died within a day of a thousand years. Amen? Now, it was where God knew to fulfill his long-range plan, man had to become mortal. Man had to be able to suffer, bleed, and die. Because 4,000 years later, 
He was going to send His Son down to take up on a human body. Amen? And in that human body, He would walk and talk on earth and demonstrate the kingdom of God, but He would head for His ultimate purpose of taking this body to the cross and let the blood be shed so He could purchase His church and be Redeemer of mankind. Amen? How many have been redeemed by the blood? You know, there's a difference. You know, people need to realize for Jesus... He had to give his life. It's kind of like the story of the chicken and the pig wanting to make breakfast for the farmer. And the chicken says, I'll give the eggs, you give the ham. Now, for the chicken, it's an offering. For the pig, it's a sacrifice. (laughs) Amen. And Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for us, shed His last blood to purchase His church. Now, the Bible says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Jesus the Son came, gave His life on the cross, but the Bible doesn't say He died for the world. He died for the church. Come on, Ephesians 5 says he loved the church, gave himself for the church, that he might redeem the church, and present it to himself a glorious church. And he talks about Jesus came to get the church. But to get to have the church, he had to save sinners. That's the reason for this sake, the Son of Man came that he might save sinners. But he didn't come to just to save us from hell so to go to heaven. Thank God that's in the deal. Now, for instance, let me explain something. The difference between dispensational theology and restoration theology. Dispensation, which are all evangelicals and Pentecostals, see no purpose for the church except to win more church and take them to heaven so God has a bigger family. And their only reason why time continues on is that give God more time to get more people saved. But that doesn't make a lot of sense when only about 10% are getting saved becoming Christians. It's a little more now while the rest are there in hell. So the longer you wait, the more people go to hell. Come on. It's like in the Bible college. Where I'd have a three-week debate with a third and fourth-year Bible college uh, students on the destiny of a heathen. I said, you go to this dark continent, and there's a man out there that, in this tribe, and, and he follows his conscience the best he knows how. He loves to do good. He wants to do right. But he dies, never hearing the name of Jesus, never hearing the gospel, and the third-year students had to get him in heaven. Fourth year had to put him in hell. And so one year, the third year was smarter than the fourth year. And I had to write a five-page, 200 scriptures to prove you couldn't get him in heaven. You can't get in heaven without the name of Jesus, without being born again. There's one door to heaven. He's the door. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Amen? And so... <clears throat> So we, we, we use the one illustration. If a man goes to an uncivilized tribe and 10,000, none of them are Christian because they've never heard the gospel, and you present the gospel, 5,000, if they're all saved by ignorance and innocence, are you with me? Then all 10,000 are going to heaven. But if you go and present the gospel, 5,000 accept and 5,000 reject, then you've got 5,000 going to heaven and you just sent 5,000 to hell. Now, if all 10,000 were saved in her ignorance, it would have been better for the missionary who stayed home. 
Because once you go, they have to make a decision. And 5,000 get saved, they're going to heaven. The other 5,000 now are going to hell because they rejected Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? And I don't care how much empathy you use, human sympathy, there's no way you can get somebody in heaven without the gospel, without Jesus, without being born again, but they become a child of God. Human sentiment would say everybody's got to go. No, but no, there is only one way. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And he says, if you come up any other way, you're a thief and a robber. And he says, you have to have Jesus. And if you want to get people mad, tell them there's only one way. Oh, man, I've witnessed the people on a plane, they get so mad. Oh, you're so narrow-minded. You're so egotistical. You think your ways? I said, no, Jesus is the only way. Well, yeah, but there's many of them. And there's one guy said, all roads lead to heaven. I said, yep, they do. But most will be turned away to hell. All is going to stand before the great white throne judgment. But those that don't have Jesus are going to go to hell and suffer in flames of fire forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? How many still believe there is a hell, same as a heaven? Hallelujah. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' plan, the God plan for Jesus to die on the cross and to shed his life's blood. Now, in my book, Who Am I? Why Am I Here? I give you eight reasons God created the human race. And from God's perspective, he created the human race to reveal a purpose and reveal himself to mankind. From my viewpoint, Jesus came because I was a sinner, and he came to redeem me from sin. But God planned the death of Jesus before man ever sinned. What was, come on, says you preachers, you know, God said he was slain from the foundation of the world. Amen. So he knew man was going to sin, and he planned it. But you know, I, I, I just throw this out. You can read the book on the on who am I, why am I here? I'll get the tape series. It's got that word for word dramatized. But Jesus said, it, "Father Isaiah fifty-three says it pleased the Lord to bruise him." You know, I asked in Bible college one day. I said, uh, "Why would God create a race of beings that He knew would end up costing the death of His Son?" And one young lady that, you know, one of those people you just push your button, they talk before they think. And she said, she said, I guess God wanted an excuse to kill his son. They said, no, that doesn't sound right. But was God forced into sacrificing his son, or did he plant it from the foundation of the world? If he did plant it, why did he plant it? And let me just give you a really quickie on this. This is not my notes tonight, but it's in my book. <laughs> let me explain it. This is show the double love of God. God created the whole human race to give opportunity for himself to demonstrate what makes God tick. What is the core being of God? Before Jesus died on the cross, we knew some things about God. He's a creator. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. And if too many people get wicked, he'll just flood them out. Amen? And if Sodom and Gomorrah gets too wicked, he'll just burn them up. I mean, he's tough. He's mighty, but all of that could have been like the Greek gods they portray up there, just had man for a plaything, have fun with. But why did God create man? What is the core being of God? We did not know until God fulfilled the setup he made to reveal to angels, cherubim, seraphim, and to his masterpiece creation, mankind, what makes God's core being what ticks. How many have ever heard that God is love? How do you know God loves you? What do you normally say? How do you know God loves you? He did what? 
He died for me. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. Agape, divine love, cannot be shown by the giving of things. It's kind of like married love. You know, you know I give my wife rubies and diamonds and dresses and, and cars and everything. But if I was two-timing her, she wants me to give myself. You know, and she'll ask me sometimes, do you love me? And if I hesitate a moment, suddenly I'm in outer space and flying saucers. <laughs> How many wives ever ask your husband, do you love me? If he starts hesitating, what happens? Oh, you're in trouble, brother. <laughs> and the older you get, the more faith statements you have to make. You're beautiful. You're handsome. I love you. You're great. But I tell you, when we were younger, I appreciated her cute little waistline, her pretty face, long, beautiful hair. Now we appreciate every fat pound of fat we put on each other, every gray hair, every bald head, every wrinkle. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory. Love has to be deeper than the flesh. It's got to be in the spirit. Amen. Because I tell you, we don't stay the way we did when we said, I do. And, you know, in the marriage ceremony I put in there, it's until death do us part, and you can't commit murder or suicide, though at times you will feel like it. <laughs> Amen. But God created man in order to give himself an opportunity to demonstrate to all creation what makes God tick. Everything God does is out of love. Come on. Hereby we know that God loved us in that he died for us, Romans 5 eight. Greater love is no man that said he'd die for his friend. So there, there's a, I give eight reasons God created the human race. Worship is number seven. Fellowship is number eight. But there's six ahead of that was more meaningful and personal to God. Because he had trillions of angels to praise him. And had trillions of angels serve him, serve him in the fellowship. So to make it a reason, you've got to find out what does your worship do for God that the angels and the cherubims don't do. Because the cherubims cried day and night, holy, holy, holy. And they don't have to be exalted. Come on, folks, let's praise God. Come on. They do it day and night. And every time they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, they get a revelation of God's greatness and power. They say it again. They get a bigger revelation. They've been doing it for a trillion years and getting a bigger revelation and a bigger revelation. And they touch just claiming, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, revelation. He's so big, like the universe, you can't find the end of God's glory and grace and power. Amen? And then there's six other reasons. But now, God sees the end. I want to encourage you. God saw the end. When Jesus came, He came to birth the church. And He birthed the church. And He said those famous five words in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. Amen? Now, when He said that, He had the blueprint in mind. It wasn't a little boy scout shack. It wasn't like the evangelicals say, run down my own earth, dead, cold, lukewarm, laid, the sin church. No, no. He said it's going to be more beautiful than Solomon's temple. Come on. Greater. I'm telling you, the true church of Jesus Christ has already had its great falling away. A thousand years of it. There's not going to be another falling away of the true church. There's going to be the worldly church that's going to go into the, you know. But the true church is going to go from glory to glory, faith to faith, power to power, revelation to revelation, victory to victory, because God's got a purpose for the church. Let me tell you something. When the Third Reformation was birthed, 
you have to realize it starts in 2008 and doesn't end to Revelation 11:15. If you read too many of the books on the Left Behind series, go home, unpack your bags, put your armor back on. We've got a lot of work to do. And I'm amazed. How I was preaching up in Toronto, Ontario, uh, about the 70s, 80s, and I was preaching on your church membership is forever. Amazing. And I was amazed how many people look forward to go to heaven to get away from the church and preachers. But you're stuck with each other forever. The church is an everlasting living organism, not an organization. And, and the head of the, the church is eternal as the head. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. Is He alive forevermore? And I tell you, I'm amazed how many saints look forward to go to heaven for eternal vacation. I mean, they look forward to go to heaven to be spooky spirits floating with a halo over the head, a long gown on like the Catholics portrayed in the Dark Age. And they're floating around saying, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And they're just going to praise the Lord to become one big mouth evolving. Hallelujah. We're going to praise Him a lot, but there's more than that. Amen. Then we're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I remember in Pentecost. Oh, hallelujah. I'm going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to eat at that table a million miles long and a hundred million saints. And we're going to eat and eat and eat until we become a big glob floating off in space. I remember in Pentecost, all oh, those old saints, Woo, I'm going to walk down the streets of gold. And I thought, that's pavement material. <laughs> you know? I mean, they get excited about walking down the streets of gold. But what I get excited about is being a co-laborer and joint heir with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and I could, you get my books, I'll give you about 100 scriptures to back it up. The church is now on assignment to co-labor with Christ to make every nation a sheep or goat nation. Because Matthew 25, 31 says the first thing Jesus does when he comes back, sits on the throne of his glory, and it separates the sheep nations from the goat nations. That's the reason we've got to work harder to make the United States back a sheep nation. Because we, we're teeter-tottering for the last few decades. In the last few years, we have teeter-tottered from being a real sheep nation. We've got to get back to morality and righteousness and God's truth. Amen? And, and we've got to do it. It's up to us. One man, a president, is not going to make that big a difference. But the church can. We are the determining factor which way our nation goes. Amen? It's the church. It's the church. We're, we're God's emissaries, we're God's authority, we're God's ambassadors, we're God's delegated authority to execute the judgment written. And we gotta, we gotta, you can declare a no-fly zone over your area. If you take your warriors and go up in the spirit, because the Bible says we, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but the weapons of our warfare are mighty. We do have weapons. Amen? And we're God's spiritual air force. And you remember when they went to Libya, when they made a no-fly zone over that? They blew out the air force and wiped out the communication channels. Come on. We can go up and pull down principalities and powers and a strong man over your area and say, this belongs to me and God, and we have this, this is our area. No-fly zone, no witchcraft, no new age, no bondage. We're going to make a no-fly zone. Amen? And then we can bomb their communication channels between witchcraft 
you know, spiritists, how the hell are these communication channels? We've had the witchcraft try to come. When we moved to our area, it's right between two cities, Panama City and Port Walton Beach. And it was 25 miles, the closest grocery store. Now they're right around us. But we drove out all the witchcraft. There were six covens there. We drove them everywhere out. We cleared the atmosphere. Then we got busy doing other things for God. Population exploded and came in there. And now we're having to drive them out again. Come on. You have to keep on driving them out. We've got the power. We've got the authority. Amen. And we can make a no-fly zone. And we're going to drive out witches, witchcraft, spirit zones, and new age, false doctrine, false religion, and let the church arise. Amen. Now, the third reformation is designed for us to take all the truths. That's the reason I tell pastors, you need to go back and make sure every one of your saints is fully established in every restoration truth. Do they know what it is to really be born again? How many has been born again? How many of you preachers, if you preach it now, have a lot more insight, more revelation of what it means to be born again? Amen. Justified by faith. Water baptism, most, most people don't know what water baptism really means. They just went through a form. But you know, more people died for the truth of water baptism than almost any other truth. Yet we hardly ever preach it, amen? Do they know what it means? How about sanctification and holiness? How many holiness is a spirit and a life and a nature? I, I was raised, my wife was raised in Pentecost. Well, in fact, it was a Jesus-named church. And man, everything was a sin but breathing, and that had to be done in church. I mean... Couldn't cut your hair, couldn't wear lipstick, couldn't wear earrings. You know, had to have long sleeves, long dresses, and long tongues. And you could gossip and tell better, but you couldn't wear if lipstick and earrings. That was flesh, 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 whirly, whirly, Jezebel, Jezebel, you know. Now, I remember so many messages. Bless God, get the fire on the inside, it'll burn the pan off the outside. You know. But those earrings in your ear just four inches from heathenism. I didn't allow my wife to pierce her ears for our 25th wedding anniversary. Amen. And, but um, thank God it's not clothesline holiness. It's holiness of nature and character. Amen. The nature and character of Christ. And that doesn't mean everything's free to go. The grace of God teaches us to live in a godly, holy life. And there is modesty. Amen. I went to a church in California. They came in their shorts, just T-shirts. Looked like they just come out of a ragtag place. I said, when you go to God's house, you're going to the king, and you're already dressing your best. Amen. Hallelujah. And uh, I know, you know, outward appearance doesn't, you know, God doesn't look at it, but He does look at some things. Amen. And I believe, I'm still old-fashioned enough to believe you ought to look right. <laughs> Go before the King. Now, I said all this to say this. We are now in the Third Reformation. Now, think about this. None of us were a part, well, I was a part of four, rest- I was a part of the, Part, uh, Pentecost already came, and I wasn't a part of the Protestant movement in 1500. I may look like it, but I really wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there in 1600, wasn't there in 1700, 1800, 1900. But thank God I did get to be a part of the Restoration Movement of 48, the Charismatic Movement of the 60s, and then the Faith Movement of the 70s, and Pioneer the Prophetic, be a part of the Apostolic, and see the birth of the Saints Movement. But now God says, if we will activate... Everything. If, if I could practice everything I know to be truth, the devil would have a nervous breakdown every morning I woke up. How many know more than you can do? How many know that these signs should follow them that believe in my name? Believers shall cast out demons. When's the last time you cast a demon out? Believers shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. When's the last time you laid hands on somebody and they recovered? 
Come on. They'll speak with new tongues. That's the reason I wrote the book on the power it takes to pour them. Seventy reasons for speaking in tongues. Fifteen biblical proof reasons. Thirty powerful personal benefit reasons. And twenty-five powerful spiritual ministry reasons. We are not using what God gave us. It's like God putting a million dollars in your, in your bank and you go around writing five and ten dollar checks now and then. God's giving you the power of the Holy Ghost and everything that you need activated, speaking in tongues does it. Come on, I mean, I don't have time to preach on it. I wish I did. I get all of you full of the Holy Ghost more. Amen. But let me say this. We're now in the third reformation. Think about this. None of us were there at the first reformation. Nobody was there 2,000 years ago. We weren't there for most of the restoration movements over the last 500 years. But listen to this. You now have the opportunity to be at the beginning of the third and final church reformation. And God's looking for reformers like Martin Luther and John Wesley and those great Pentecostal leaders. It's our day. It's our time. Now, I... I, I, I expect, you know, most reformations last several centuries. I'm still inclined to believe that God's done something different every 2,000 years. Start zero when Adam and Eve came out of the garden. 2,000 years later, God changed the general human race and called out a special race called the Hebrew race, Israeli race. Then 2,000 years later, he called out another special race from the Hebrew race and the Gentile race called the church race. How many know that you're different than the rest of human beings? You have an everlasting life in a mortal body. How many have an everlasting life? You're not like the Church of Christ. I have to wait till you get to heaven and find out where you got it. We've got it now. How many know I, you have eternal life? He that hath the Son hath everlasting So you've got everlasting life in a mortal body. But the rest of the world has everlasting, everlasting death in a mortal body. And if they're not born again, they will suffer the second death, which is a lake of fire. Right? Now, 2,000 years later, we've now entered the third millennial of the church. And I believe 2,000 years, but it's not the, of the calendar, but not the church. Church was birthed in 30 A.D. 2,000 years won't be up to 2030 A.D. If I preach till I'm 95, I get to be there. And I'm still inclined to believe God's going to do a quick work, cut it short in righteousness. The other movements took hundreds of years, other reformations. But I believe the third and final church reformation is going to quickly come forth. And we're going to see the kingdom of God demonstrated in every nation. Amen. Because when you read Matthew 24, the disciples ask Jesus three questions that's on the heart and mind of many people. What are the signs of your coming? How, how will we know when it's here? And what will be the greatest? When will be the end? When will the end of the age of mortal man come? And Jesus said, well... Common things will happen and multiply, such as famine, war, rumors of war, and all these kingdom against kingdom and all this economic recession. Those will be common, but that's the end is not yet. Then it says, here's what you've got to watch for. But this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Then the end shall come. Then the end shall come. How many want Jesus to come? Then we need to start demonstrating the kingdom. And the kingdom's not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And it says, if I cast out devils by the finger of God, the kingdom of God's coming to you. The kingdom of God is not in word only, it's in power. And God's calling you, some of you preachers, are going to be kingdom reformers. Don't level out. Don't, it's go from glory to glory, truth to truth. And, I, you know, 
How many believe Jesus is going to come again? There's some apostles doing away with that now, but I still believe it. How many believe Jesus is God? Can God do about anything He wants? How many think Jesus wants to come back? But if Jesus is God, and God can do anything He wants, and He wants to come back, why hasn't He? Why hasn't He? Acts 3.21 tells you. Turn to Acts 3.21. Throw that up there if you got it. Acts 3.21. Acts, while you're getting there, Acts 3.18 says that Jesus fulfilled every Messianic prophecy. How many believe Jesus is the true Messiah? Then in verse 19 it said, Repent, and the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send again Jesus Christ, which has already been preached to you Jews. And He says He's coming again. He's coming again. But look at verse 21. But He's coming again. But heaven must receive Jesus until, everybody say until, until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Can Jesus come any time? No. He can't come until. See, evangelicals and Pentecostals told us all of our life Jesus could come any time from the day of Pentecost till now. No, He can't. He can't come until. Now, I've used that for the restoration of the church for 50 years. But then when the Third Reformation came, he said, go back and look again. He's held in the heavens until the restoration of, of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. All things. Now, the prophets never said anything about the devil being saved. The prophets never said anything about inclusion, doctrine, everybody's going to be saved. Come on. Or if you die, you have a second chance. But the prophets did talk about three redemptions. Redemption of man. Redemption of Israel. And redemption of planet Earth. Amen? Now, he's held in the heaven until all things. One translation says the Living Bible, until everything that happened by the sin of man is restored. We've got a big job ahead of us. Jesus is going to do it all in and through his church. You know, when God says, I will, he means we will. When he says, you will, he means we will. All right? Now, look at Hebrews 10, 13. Verse 9 talks about Jesus making the perfect sacrifice once for sin forever. How many believe Jesus doesn't have to be sacrificed at every Mass? <laughs> he sacrificed once for all. And then it says, when He did that and He accomplished, Father God says, Son, come up here. Sit at my right hand. Hebrews 1.10 says, Sit at my right hand till I make all enemies your footstool. Hebrews 10.13 says, Jesus sat down. Is that and that's, that's the one I'm on. Sat down at the right hand of the Father, doing what? Waiting. Everybody say waiting. What's he waiting for? Who's he waiting on to make his enemies his footstool? Turn to your neighbor and say, you. I know you're looking forward to go to heaven for eternal vacation. I know you're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I remember I was going through a real rough time about 30 years ago. And man, I was, I was bawling and squalling and fasting and praying and praying, murmuring and complaining and calling it praying. And, and, and I said, oh God, take me to heaven. I want to go to heaven. Lord, I want to get up and out. God, take me out. And finally God said, isn't it strange? You're trying to get up and out and I'm trying to get down and back. 
was like, I was like the, I was like the, you know, the Jew that was at the Wailing Wall, and a Gentile came up, and the Jew saying, "Oh Lord, I want to know where my people are. I want to know where my people are." And he said, finally, the Gentile said, "You're at the Wailing Wall. You're in Jerusalem. Why are you crying out? I want to know where my people are." He said, "Where are your people?" He said, "Miami Beach." <laughs> Jesus wants to go where his people are. Amen. Now, this will scare your flesh and shake your theology. When you, if, you, if all your goal was was to go to heaven and be good for nothing. A spooky spirit floating through space. A heavenly, ha, hallelujah, heavenly hobo on the glory train to the next glory. You were saved, redeemed, and prepared and equipped to be instruments in the hand of God to fulfill His purpose and His will. Amen? Like, like He said in Jeremiah 51, 20, you're my battle axe. I used to call my mother-in-law that. But, but, really, <laughs> but it says we're His weapons of war. In fact, Psalm 149, 6 says, to execute the vengeance of God, to execute the judgment written, this honor have all His saints. Now, I want to close by saying this. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Did he come to Miami yet? How many still believe in the second coming? So, if everything has to be accomplished, restored before he can come back, and he hasn't come back, then there must be more that not got to be done. Right? More has got to be restored. So, God needs a people that's got a vision. And I came here tonight to launch you into the Third Reformation. I gave the word of the Lord for the local church, but now I want, I, want, I want to... God's looking for reformers. Martin Luther did his part. John Wesley did his part in, in their day. But David served the Lord in his generation. I've got a part to play. You and I got a part to play. God's not dead. He's not through. We're still in a flow. We're still in a progressive purpose of God. And we're heading for somewhere. Come on. God had the end view. And the end view is... The kingdoms of this world, put Revelation eleven fifteen. That's where the that's where the third reformation ends. Now every prophetic statement has to come to pass. Come on. For four thousand years, prophet said, Messiah coming, Messiah coming. Jesus came, died on the cross, was a Messiah. Now for two thousand years it's been history. This this prophecy decree after someday will be history. Somebody, somewhere, sometime is going to rise up and preach to demonstrate the kingdom of God to a witness to every nation until every nation eventually at the end becomes the kingdoms of our Lord and His church. Amen? And Jesus, when He prayed that prayer in John 7 and 4, Father, I have finished the work You gave Me to do. And the Father, when He died and rose again and started the church, Father said, Son, you have done all you need to do in that personal body. Now, sit at my right hand until your church subdues all enemies under your feet. Then I'll release you to go back, change your church from mortal to immortal, and they can jump on a white horse, really, sweep through the heavens, find every principality and power and demon, pass them in the bottom of his pit, and set up new heavens and new earth and ruin reign with Christ. How many want to ruin reign with Christ? Revelation 5, 10 says he's made his priests of God, and we shall rule and reign with Christ. Where? Space city number two, somewhere beyond the black hole. Put Revelation 5.10 up there. 
He's made us kings and priests with God, and we shall reign on the earth. It was shocking and amazing to me when I studied it out about 25 years ago to discover we're stuck with Mother Earth forever. Come on. Do you know earth is going to be redeemed? Did you ever read Romans 8? It says there's a glory that's going to be revealed through us, and it's so wonderful, it's a glory. It says every suffering we're going through will seem as nothing. Then it says, the moment he says that in verse 18, he says, verse 19, for the whole creation is waiting on the church. The whole creation is waiting on the church. Because when we come into our redemption, they get redemption. And the trees will no longer leave their leaves. There's no longer be decay and death, but there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Not a different earth. This earth renovated by fire, purified, and set up for the reign of the righteous. Jesus and his church. And then earth becomes main street of heaven. Hallelujah. Whew. Glory. Now, what I want to do, I want to see how many here are willing to say, Lord, I'm, I'm trying to stay saved to go to heaven and escape hell. But I hope your vision gets bigger. Now, I started out, I got saved not because I loved Jesus, didn't even know Him. I got saved because He was the only way to get me out of hell. But now, I've known His ways and know Him so much. Even if there wasn't a hell to show or heaven again, His ways are still the best way to live. He's still the way, the truth, and life. Amen? But there is eternal hell. There is eternal heaven. But let me ask you this. Are you willing to say, Lord, here am I. You need instruments in your hand. You need a church that's not just trying to stay saved and go to heaven, but they're willing to give their life as you gave your life on the cross. Give their life for you to use to accomplish your purpose. He started with a view of the end, and he's working toward that end. And I think the house is just about completed. Come on, I believe the temple of the Lord is about finished. And he's going to come back and fill his temple with his glory. Amen. I want to see how many here now, don't stand unless you mean business, because God's going to start working on you fast. Come on, He's going to start perfecting you, killing you, transforming you. Get rid of all self and all that murmuring, complaining, and poor me, and, and churchitis, and, you know, and just, why doesn't people love me more and treat me better? You're going to, you're going to let self be crucified where you're God-conscious, not self-conscious. Until you're God's kingdom-conscious, not just your own pleasure and blessing-conscious. Amen? If you, want, if you want to say, God, I want to be a third Reformation reformer. I want to be an instrument in your hand. You've done all to 6,000 years repairing the church for this day and hour. I don't want to pass me by. I want to be one of those. Would you stand? Don't stand unless you mean business because it's free, but it costs you everything. I said, it's free, but it costs you everything. We've... Over, we've come to the third level of overcomers. We're overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and now we love not our lives under the death. Amen? Now, if you mean business, you, I, I'm, a, I'm a Cindy Jagers prophesied I was a five-star general in the army of the Lord. I want to draft you into the army. How many know when you get in the army? Is anybody in the military? Was anybody in the military? Nobody? Was you, were you in the military? You I remember when Elvis Preston went in the military. He couldn't go in and say, I'm Elvis Presley. I love my hair this way. I like to wear these clothes. I sleep till 10 o'clock in the morning. No, no. When he joined the army, beep, new hairstyle, new clothing. And somebody called us drill sergeant, says, I'm your mama now. 
I'll tell you when to get up. I'll tell you when to go to bed. When I say march, you march. When I say stand, you'll stand. I don't find one in a hundred Christians, army personnel. They're independent, do their own thing, civilians. God's looking for army. God's looking for soldiers. He's not looking for independence, self-promoting, self-preserving, self-self-Christian. He's looking for soldiers. Amen? Because it's going to take an army to get this job done. If you mean business, let me pray for you as a, as a general in the army of the Lord. Raise your hands up. When you raise your hand, you're saying, I pledge allegiance, I surrender, I need, I worship, I commit. Father, right now, your eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking for those.